following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. So I was preparing this message. I was thinking about my growing up years and how our family would leave from Houston, Texas to go visit my grandparents out in Atlanta, Georgia. And I noticed as my grandmother grew older, it became harder and harder for her to host our family in her home. And uh, though my mother would try to help her out as much as possible, uh, it didn't always work out so well. My, my father's mother, grandmother, uh, would get so worked up with anxiety over all the burdens and the responsibilities of hosting our family in her home, and she was coming down in age, and we later learned that she was developing Alzheimer's. And so my, my mother concluded that it was just better for, to have them come to our house. And so increasingly, we would fly uh, my grandparents to Houston to visit for the holidays, and we know that my grandmother would relax. And just simply enjoy herself because she didn't bear the burden and responsibilities of hosting. I think like my grandmother, filled with anxiety, sometimes we, we burden ourselves with a heavy sense of duty in our responsibility, with, in, our, in our relationship with God. We invite Christ into our heart, we welcome him into our, our home by faith, and we can fall into the trap of getting worked up with a performance mindset and my grandmother's southern spirit. Paul, in tonight's passage, continues his argument that our justification before God is solely based upon the work of Christ. There is no performance, no work, no, no, no duty on our part, but faith alone in response to the gospel. I will read... Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is God's word. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, the message of salvation that comes through loud and clear through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And we thank you for the Apostle Paul for his, his passion and clarity on this very, very important subject. I pray that you might give us wisdom and insight into your word as we study it together tonight. As we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, periodically, my wife and I will invite another family over for a meal. And uh, as it usually is the case, the the wife of the other home family will ask my wife what she can bring. What what can I offer and bring for the meal? And uh, usually my wife will recommend something that she can bring. Uh, but occasionally my wife will insist, oh no, you don't have to bring anything, just, just come. And then, then begun, begins the negotiating that women do of trying to figure out who's going to bring what, and is it really okay not to bring anything. And uh, sometimes my wife will yield and allow the other woman to bring something, and sometimes she'll dig her heels in and, and insist, no, don't bring anything, just, just come, just bring yourselves. When it comes to salvation, though, there is no negotiation. We don't do, make, or bring anything to the table. In our salvation, God does everything. You and I don't have anything. We don't bring anything. We don't do anything other than respond to the work of God by faith in Jesus Christ. It is human nature The fact that we are hardwired for duty. This oftentimes leads us to confuse a biblical understanding of salvation. But because God accomplishes everything necessary for salvation, we must rest by faith alone in the work of Christ. Paul offers four proofs that our justification is indeed by faith alone in Christ and not by the work of our own hands. He begins by referencing the sacrifice of Christ that points to our justification. He goes on to refer to how the Spirit testifies to our justification by faith. And then there's a, a short verse on the suffering of the believer confirms justification. And lastly, a lengthier treatment of sonship how our adoption as children of God rests upon justification by faith alone. Well, Paul opens our chapter by charging these Galatian believers for being senseless and goes on to ask them whether or not they are under a spell. Are you bewitched? Paul is befuddled at how deluded these believers are in a, with a distorted gospel of assuming that justification is a matter of works. And so Paul offers his first argument of rebuttal by going back to the cross. He begins his argument with the message of the, of the gospel mission and then also the gospel message. Paul's reference to the crucifixion in verse 1 of our chapter is a confirmation that God's mission has been accomplished. Christ did the work of salvation. And to presume that we can add our works to our salvation is to ultimately deny the sacrifice of Christ and to rob him of his glory. You recall Jesus' 
last words upon the cross. It is finished. It's done. Mission accomplished. Everything necessary is complete, and we add nothing to it. Paul says here that that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It's like the divine edict to send the clear message to all the redeemed. Your debt, your sin is paid in full. It is finished. Paul is exasperated because these believers are failing to recognize what a distorted picture of the gospel that, they, that they've developed. And in our own day, we have many distortions of the gospel as well. There is the therapeutic gospel, which emphasizes our felt needs through psychological assessments of human nature that largely ignores the life and death issues of our eternal welfare. There's the health and wealth prosperity gospel that that promises, that banks upon the promises of God's blessing upon his people, but lacks any real acknowledgement of, let alone a calling to, a life of suffering and submission to Christ. It's a name and claim it gospel. And of course, there are all kinds of various perfectionistic gospels. I call it Nike Christianity. Just do it in order, depending upon the works of the flesh rather than God's spirit by grace. All of these distorted gospels major on the minors and miss the point of God's grace. And so, when one of us raises a concern, if you raise a concern to someone steep in such a distorted gospel, you, you invite blank stares. I mean, people look at you like you have two heads. If you call into question their precious perversion of the gospel, cults like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses deny the gospel first by rejecting the deity of Christ, and secondly, with their preoccupation with works. The Roman Catholic faith thankfully affirms, believes in the deity of Christ, but commits the grave error of mixing works with faith. In fact, the, the Roman Catholic practice of the Mass is actually a re-sacrifice of Christ, which is a denial of what Scripture teaches us, especially in Hebrews, that declares that the sacrifice of Christ is once and for all, making all other sacrifices null and void. Paul had a resolve to the Corinthian church to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The implications of the cross overwhelmed and dominated all of Paul's preaching. The gravity of human sin, the eternal plan of God, the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrifice of perfect satisfaction to God. The double imputation of our sin being placed upon Christ and in exchange receiving Christ's righteousness. The resurrection of our Lord. His victory over sin and death and the full confirmation that he indeed is the eternal Son of God. Any discussion of human works with our salvation, any, any notion of 
perfecting the believer through the works of the flesh is to deny the message of the cross. There is only one thing left in response to the message of the cross, and that is personal faith in Christ, resting and trusting in him alone to believe the gospel message means to rest in the work of God completed on our behalf. It is finished. Paul goes on to reference the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who testifies that our justification not only began with faith, it continues in faith and will be completed, finished through faith. Works no play no part in the receiving of God's Spirit. Now, I remind you that these Galatian believers were being tempted by the circumcision party, otherwise referred to as the Judaizers uh, by some in our day, tempted to believe that their faith was not enough. They needed more, something else to confirm their Christianity, to uh, confirm their fellowship in Christ church. Their induction was incomplete unless they submitted to the practice of circumcision and to the dietary laws of the Jewish faith. Paul reminds them and us that you did not receive the Spirit of God by any right, ritual, obligation under the law, but through the hearing and believing of the gospel. What was begun was not by works of the law, but by faith. And so what began by the Spirit through faith then would only make sense if it were to continue by faith. You and I do not need to do anything else to maintain our status as a believer before God and others. There are no hard requirements of praying a certain prayer, of coming forward at a particular meeting, signing some commitment even sharing our faith to lead someone else to Christ, or submitting to some particular mode of baptism. Now, these things are not bad, necessarily, in and of themselves, but we have to be real careful before we put up other tests of membership, tests for fellowship, to somehow prove that someone is a believer by simply conforming to our extra-biblical standards. Paul goes on to ask rhetorically, having begun by the Spirit and continued by the Spirit, he says, uh, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That meaning by human effort. There is a works-oriented bias in our human nature that makes it very difficult for us to believe that salvation is by faith alone. You know, God started me down this path, and I've got to finish it. It's my job to get to the finish line. I've got to exert myself and respond, and it's all up to me. Well, in our weakness, in our flesh, we question the ongoing supply of God. And here's Paul addresses that as well in verse 5. He says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We began by faith. We continue by faith. And we will finish by faith to the Spirit that God provides 
on our behalf. You know, living, trying to live the Christian life by works of the law or works of the flesh, it would be like a scuba diver descending 100 feet down to the ocean floor, breathing normally from their oxygen tank. But then after arriving at the bottom, throwing the tank away and determined to explore for the next half hour, holding his breath. Determined to finish the exploration and to ascend back to the top without that oxygen supply. That's how some Christians try to live the Christian life. We forget to breathe. In our hyper-independence, we fail to depend upon God's grace, the gift of His Spirit, to live by faith. I think some of us have too much to prove, and we have to learn to rest and trust in God's provision. You know, I think it's, it's very common in American Christianity to believe in this notion that one is saved by faith but lives the rest of the Christian life by works. And, and if that's not professed in principle, it is exercised in practice. Now, good works are part of the Christian life. They are expected and necessary. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, make it clear that we are saved by grace through faith to do good works, the good works that the Father has prepared in advance for us to do. In fact, James, in his letter, confronts the problem of those who claim to be a Christian, but whose life does not confirm it. They don't have works to confirm that their faith. But I'm convinced that, that our contemporary, contemporary problem, which is not all that different from the problem of the the people and Paul's original audience, is this problem of thinking that somehow our good works keep us saved. Somehow that it maintains us in God's good graces. We, We need good works to keep the Father happy, to avoid His wrath. Somehow we need to stay in His good graces and demonstrate our love and devotion and sacrifice before Him. I think for many of us, there's a deep and unsettling anxiety that, that we, we're afraid that something is lacking. That somehow we need to make up our shortcomings and add some good deeds to the work of Christ just to make sure we're good with God. Let me assure you that, that, that your good deeds, your good works are not supplemental to the work of Christ. Your justification before God is 100% the work of Christ. That it's, it's 100% the work of Christ that makes us holy in God's sight. And that keeps us in God's good graces. That secures our place in glory. And no lack of good works somehow cancels our reservation in heaven. You know, imagine a, a young man who... Is he, who makes a reservation at his girlfriend's favorite first-class restaurant. He's going to pop the question that night. And it's a couple of weeks out, and in his anxiety, he calls back every couple of days just, just to make sure that reservation is still there. Well, like this young man, we, we, we have anxiety about our reservation. We want to make sure it's still there. Well, friends, we don't need that anxiety. Our, res- our reservation in heaven 
is secure through Christ. Our good works don't strengthen our reservation, and our lack of certain works, certain requirements, do not forfeit that reservation. Our hope is in Christ. And our good works are exercised by faith through the Spirit that God provides. Well, as a third argument, there's, I believe, snuck in this passage in verse 4, this idea from Paul that, that, that in a way, our experience of suffering confirms our justification by faith. In verse 4, Paul claims that, that living by works of the law means that the believer's suffering is in vain. And this word for suffering also means experience, referring to uh, the, the hardships that these people had suffered. And we don't know all the hardships that these Galatian believers had to go through. But in the context of the New Testament, uh, we have several indicators. We know that the Gentiles were pressured, in this case and elsewhere, to give in to Jewish demands, perhaps to avoid persecution, to uh, keep social ostracism at bay. And uh, we know that Paul and his companions and these Jewish and Gentile converts making up this local church did bear a certain amount of hostility from Jews who resented their rejection of Jewish standards and requirements, also resented their claim of salvation by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, in the first century, the Jewish faith was respected by Roman law, and for a time, the church was considered just a branch of Judaism and also enjoyed the same protections as the Jewish synagogue. But, but in time, through Jewish antagonism and changing attitudes from Rome, believers began to experience much harsher treatment. And I believe that Paul is arguing that the believer yielding to the pressure of these Judaizers was to compromise the gospel, to accommodate worldly standards at the expense of the message of salvation by faith alone. Believers today are also pressured to conform to various practices that may be culturally acceptable and yet compromise the truth of Scripture. Certain actions make murky the clarity, the biblical clarity of salvation by faith alone. I'm convinced that the time is rapidly approaching here in our own culture when the church will be increasingly scrutinized by government authorities and others because of our refusal to accommodate cultural attitudes, perhaps on sexual ethics or some other moral concerns that will ebb and flow with the winds of change. The mayor of Houston, my hometown, recently subpoenaed various sermons from conservative pastors who had formed a coalition confirming biblical marriage. Whether from religious sources or secular sources, authorities will put pressures on believers to compromise our conviction of salvation by faith alone and of the consequent implications of our biblical faith. It is more important than ever for us to be crystal clear on the gospel 
to know what standards we will refuse to compromise on. Now, there are many things that we can accommodate our culture on and be gracious and be wise, but there are certain principal matters that we must never compromise, regardless of the consequences. Paul's last argument refers to our sonship, the fact that you and I, by faith in Christ, are adopted as children of Abraham through the promise that God gave to Abraham that confirms the message of justification by faith alone. Now, in this part, this section, there's an implicit warning against presumption. And here Paul also offers us the grace of assurance. So Paul calls Abraham, Father Abraham, as his final witness in the case for faith. Abraham was not blessed by God because of his extraordinary life of obedience and sacrifice and devotion. Rather, Abraham responded by faith to God's promise. And it was reckoned to him, it was counted to him righteousness. And this happened years before he underwent circumcision, years before he offered up his son Isaac. Those works of faith merely confirmed the deep heartfelt faith that Abraham gave in response to the message of God. Now, Paul will give much more extensive treatment of this argument from Abraham in Romans chapter 4, but here he refers to Abraham as the predecessor to Moses and the law to clarify that it has always been God's will from the beginning that salvation for all peoples, for all nations, Jew and Gentile, is a matter of faith and not a matter of the works of the law. Now, the Jews were were called themselves the children of Abraham, and they lived by the law of Moses. But there is warning throughout the Old Testament and New Testament that natural descent does not guarantee salvation or inclusion in God's covenant. God certainly delights to bless the children of his faithful ones with with the gift of faith and salvation. However, there's a very dangerous error that's committed by communities of faith, and that's the sin of presumption. Religious people are notorious for assuming an entitlement to God's promise and his benefits upon his people while failing to appropriate the God-given means to receive those blessings. And those means are faith. Faith alone in Christ, a heartfelt response of belief, of trust, and dependence upon the Lord himself. Neither birthright nor any good works secure for us our inheritance in the kingdom of God. God's promise and his benefits are for those with a repentant and believing heart in response and desiring the living God. It's in John chapter 8 that Dr. Rogers explored weeks ago where we find Jesus rebuking his Jewish countrymen, rebuking them that they were not true sons of Abraham because they had rejected him as the son of God. Jesus actually called them children of the devil 
at which they picked up stones to strike him down. The church throughout the ages has struggled with the temptation of presumption. The Anglican Church of England in the 18th century with a sad case of unconverted priests, nominal laity, rampant unbelief and inaction. And God raised up John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, William Wilberforce, and others to revive the church, to restore her faith, and to usher in an age of societal renewal that lasted for the better part of the 19th century. I believe that the American church is in grave danger of committing the sin of presumption. We are a very entitled people. We think that God owes us. However, I argue from Scripture that God has no grandchildren, that every person becomes a child of God by faith. Each one must be born again. I think the American work ethic or the fact that we are a self-made people lends us towards this works-based understanding of salvation. It leads us to sneer at grace and salvation by faith alone in Christ. Well, Paul's final argument in verse 8 points to Scripture, how Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And this was not some novel teaching by a runaway rabbi twisting the Jewish faith. It was God's will from the very beginning. And any Jew that had a problem with justification by faith didn't have a bone to pick with Paul. They had a problem with God and his word. Because it's clear from the beginning that God called Abraham out of his paganism into a saving relationship with himself by faith alone. I think you and I need to be careful as churched people. As we think about the people around us, the unchurched people around us, remember that everyone is saved by faith alone. We want to encourage our response of faith among those that we care about, those who are in need of Christ. And we need to trust God to bring the changes in their life to conform to God's holy standards. So I think we need to abandon our natural desire to build up our traditions. Outward works of conformity standards and various identity markers. Anything that might disclaim, discount, distract from the gospel message of salvation by faith alone. What's glorious about the doctrine, the teaching of justification by faith, is that it affirms the biblical notion of assurance, because it's rooted in the work of Christ. And whenever there is any mix of faith plus works, there is a lack of assurance. Because when you mix our works and salvation, the consequence is a a lack of guarantee that your works are ever enough. Friend, Christ finished the work. He completed it. You can add nothing to it. There is no more obligation on your part. You know, I, I, I might tell my children, if I told my children that they can't watch TV until they've done their chores. 
Most people would assume that that's effective parenting. But if I tell them, you're not my children anymore, and I'm not your father anymore, if you don't do your chores, you would either think I'm joking, or if I'm not joking, what I'm saying is abusive. We don't disown our children for lack of works. Our lack of works, likewise, before the Father does not disqualify us. God is not a God who returns us to the orphanage. God is a Father who knows us completely, who knows what to expect, who knows how to provide for us. And He is a Father who is completely satisfied. The perfect work of Christ. And you and I, as sons and daughters, as as younger brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, come to the Father with a secure adoption as the well-loved children of God. You're accepted as a child, regardless of your performance, regardless of your track record. If you are in Christ by faith, No failure on your part will provoke God to disown you. Your goodness does not earn points with God or renew your standing with God, but your status before God as a son or a daughter is by faith. And the sacrifice of the Son, confirmed by the gift of the Spirit, evidenced by the suffering in your own life, confirmed by the spirit of sonship in your hearts, that we are the well-loved children of God, secured by the finished work of Christ. There is nothing more required. Come to Jesus. Rest in his eternal good and gracious favor on your behalf. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus everything was accomplished. There is no burden, there is no duty, there is no weight of obligation on our part that we are accepted in your sight through his finished work on our behalf. And may we respond with joy and delight, gladly doing the good works you've called us to do, simply out of the pleasure and delight of being your well-loved sons and daughters. Bless us tonight as we depart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.